0: We are in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition.
1: Next week, um, I'm not going to be in this pulpit. Let me tell you who he is. Uh, Gary Stewart is among us this morning. Gary and Amy and their family are visiting their father, Orville, this morning. And Gary is going to preach next Sunday. Um, I've known Gary since he was less than that high. All of my ministry, I've watched Gary grow up. And Gary went off to to, uh, Bethlehem Institute, spent a year there. Then went off to Southern Seminary. And uh, from Southern Seminary, then went to Newfoundland to pastor for six or seven years. I can't remember exactly the number. And now has returned back to Southern to work on his doctorate. Gary's passion is teaching, and uh, he's, Lord willing, hoping God will just open up an opportunity for him to teach as he gets his doctorate. But we asked Gary if he'd consent to to share with you next Sunday. I think it would be good for you to get to know his heart, get to know him. Many of you are new and don't know Gary. And so he'll be, he'll be preaching. I appreciate his willingness to do that. Gary's working on writing a book right now and under deadlines for that. And he's willing to carve out a bit of time of his vacation. And probably need to thank Amy is who I really need to thank. But And some of you may know the connection with Amy. Amy is, is the daughter of the Michaels who have been with John Piper almost, I think, from the beginning of his time at Bethlehem. So it's just good to have you home, Gary and Amy, and we're, we're excited to have you share next week here in this pulpit. This morning, we're, uh, we're continuing on in that chronological journey through the Gospels. And this morning, the text is in Mark. But actually, we're going to look at Matthew and Luke's Gospel as well. What, what has happened now is that, that Jesus has gotten the attention of Jerusalem Um, they really they really are after him now he's in this year of opposition and the opposition is getting hotter and and really now in one sense maybe one way you could say it is the bigwigs are after him they've come from Jerusalem to try to trap him now and that's the context in which we find this this text this morning and Actually, as I begin, I want to begin with a quote by Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was the great preacher of past days and wrote volumes. and uh, he once said to his congregation, he once really asked the question of his congregation, "If there were no Sunday morning service at 11 o'clock, would you still be a Christian? If there were no Sunday morning service here at 11 o'clock?" Would you still be a Christian? We'll come back to that at the end. We'll draw some conclusions of that. But I, I I share that in the context of what we just read in Mark chapter 7. In the context of what Jesus said as he's interacting now with the Pharisees and the scribes, in in Mark's account and in Matthew's account of this same historical event that happened in the Gospels, He, he puts this, they, the the writers put this passage. Now, Luke doesn't include this in his, but the other two gospel writers do. And it's this. It's what you find in here in Mark in verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines Teaching, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. Those two things, Spurgeon's question to his congregation and that text this morning, we'll come back to a little later this morning. In Luke 11.53, turn, turn there with me for a minute. Luke 11.53 we get the real reason. I said to you that that the Pharisees and the and the scribes were coming now from Jerusalem. And lest you think I'm making it up, this is what it says here in the text. It says, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. All the way from the top now, all the way from Jerusalem, they're lying in wait. Can't you just imagine what must have happened in those intermeeting days? Jesus would be out ministering, but they would be gathering. The Pharisees and the scribes, they would be gathering. They would be strategizing. They would be laying out their plans of how to entrap Jesus, how to get him. They had to stop him. They had to stop him. And, and they spent, I'm sure, hours calculating how they were going to do that. We see glimpses of them appearing here and there in the scriptures, but I'm sure they spent lots more time in secret plotting of how to catch him. And Jesus' indictment of them is this. Look at his indictment in chapter 11, if you're over in Luke, chapter 11 and verse 52, just before what I read, he says this. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. These are the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders of the Jewish people. And basically Jesus says to them, you've, you've taken away the key of knowledge. You, you, you're lost. And what you're teaching is not going to lead anybody anywhere that they need to go. And then another place in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, um, it says that they make void, they make void the word of God. Um, excuse me, not, I'm in the wrong chapter. It's not Mark 12, but Mark 7 in verse 13 says, thus making void the word of God by your t- tradition that you have handed down. In other words, you, you've taken away the key of knowledge. You've made void the uh, word of God. That's the indictment that Jesus gives to these Pharisees. Now, um, here's where I want to go this morning in this text. I think it's where the text will take us without superimposing anything upon it. I remember back when I was a young pastor, I I probably was in my first year here at Richland. it's, It's amazing how clear this memory is in my life. But I remember it was a Wednesday night service. I remember I had found a pamphlet that the title of that pamphlet said, The Pharisee in Me. And I remember the night, on a Wednesday night, in a prayer gathering in the old sanctuary... I, I even remember walking up the side of the side of the sanctuary to go to the front to do it. I don't know why it's so vivid in my memory. Partly, I think, because that caption caught me—the Pharisee in me. It's easy to to be critical of the Pharisees, and I think why Jesus gives us these things is because he he wants to show us the proneness of our own hearts. He wants to show us how prone we are to do exactly what they did. To give credence with our lips, but have hearts that are far from God. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to look at what they did. Look at how they got off track. Look at the places that, that this lack of understanding took them. So that in our own lives, we won't repeat the error of them. That for us here in 2012 at Richland, we will not repeat the error of the Pharisees. It's good for us to hear this. It's good for us to look at it. It starts here, and, and really the error of the Pharisee was to have forms with no reality. That's, that's really what it was. Forms, but no reality in those Forms. First of all, I think we see some of the key to that. This was good for me, even this week. A new insight for me to some degree in Luke chapter 11 and verse 29. If you take that text for a minute, I apologize. We're going to flip back and forth from these three texts. But in, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 29, we've been really kind of following Luke's gospel in this chronological walk through the life of Christ. And so the last times we were, we were preaching, we were preaching out of Luke. And so one of the places that we landed on was the last time I was in this pulpit. And it, it says there in verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. Jesus made that statement. This generation is an evil generation. Now, I think, as I said in my Sunday school class this morning, that the Pharisees could applaud that statement. They applauded it in one sense. Because they really did see their Jewish counterparts not going the direction they needed to go. They, they saw the people. They saw and bemoaned the situation outside of them. And they didn't get uncomfortable about that statement until Jesus then turns and looks directly at them and hones in on them. Now, I think there's real... Insight for us in this because we live in an age we live in a country that we hear lots of people talk about it's going to the dogs morally it's 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 uh, shifting morally it's sliding you hear that a lot I think we hear it more in the election cycle you hear a lot about that in the election cycle you hear about the candidate who is is the the one who has the the uh, the convictions on a, on a moral kind of sense and who, who's the, the moral cons- conservative, if you will, versus the, the economic conservative or all those kinds of terms get thrown around. We just came out of Iowa where there's lots of talk about that. So we live in an age, maybe not so different from the age that the Pharisees were in. They looked around him and they saw the people. And the moral decay to some degree of the people. And they looked at it and so they would, they would affirm that statement to one degree. Isn't that what somewhat happens here in the parallel today? The church sometimes looks outside itself and they see it and, and maybe see it properly. It's not that they don't see it correctly. It's just the problem that they failed to see it in their own heart. This is, this is a, this is a powerful thing. In fact, if you don't get anything, anything out of what I say this morning, if you don't take anything away from this point up, you shut it off and turn it off and go to sleep after this. I hope you get this. More and more as a pastor, part of my pastoral experience, it it just drives me back to this again and again and again. The question that we talk about a lot in my Sunday school class the last few years, really, The question is, they didn't turn and ask the question, what's going on in my heart? It was always somebody else. Sin is always seen as an external thing, whether externally in people or external outside of me. I think the antidote for what happened to the Pharisees is asking the question, what's going on in my heart? Having a spirit of, That is always looking at our own hearts, always looking at the sin that is in us and the prickliness that pops up. the, The whole motif that we've had in my Sunday school class is that the heat comes. Heat comes to all of us. We live in a broken world. Heat is part of this world. You will never escape heat. You will never escape pressures and pricking and poking until we're glorified. It will always be that way. This world is broken. But when we experience heat, the next thing that happens in our lives is thorns begin to come up. Thorns begin to pop up in us. And I said this morning, I made the statement for you that are not there, that even absolutely unjust heat, even, even heat that comes to us that is totally wrong, and we, in one level, do not deserve it. In, a, in, a, in this level, we don't deserve it. It was wrong. Even that kind of heat produces thorns to pop up in us. Produces sin to rise up in us and want to respond in ungodly ways. That's what we need to start to recognize. That's what the Pharisees did not recognize. They did not recognize it. They didn't acknowledge it. They wouldn't look at their own hearts. I'm convinced, people, the antidote, the most important antidote for not going the way of the Pharisees is to have a people who are continually recognizing the thorns in their life and living in repentance for it. I see more and more evidence of that happening in our body. As we, see, we see our own lives. We see when we come into conflict with people. Rather than, rather than our first thing winning the conflict or sorting out the injustice of the conflict, we start to look at our own heart and say, why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? Why am I so troubled, as somebody said in my science class this morning, about this? Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a place to try to resolve injustices. Don't, don't hear that. But if you go there first, if you jump there first and don't first look at your own heart, you will you will go about it in ways that are ungodly. Conflict causes us to see revealed in us things that we need to, to acknowledge to repent. You see the Pharisees never got there. It was all external. They never looked at their heart. Christianity is first and foremost about the heart, about God changing our hearts. You can't live this Christian life except it doesn't begin there. You will distort it. It's what the Pharisees did. They tried to live out godliness without changed hearts. Without hearts that were being examined, they failed to look at the ungodliness in their own lives. So, so I hope one of the, one of the mantras of our congregation more and more will be, what's going on in my heart? Test it this week. Test it this week when you face heat. When you go, maybe this afternoon, when you face heat. See how quickly you ask yourself, what's going on? Look inside yourself. Kind of, kind of almost step outside of yourself and look into the situation and say, what's going on there? What's going on in my heart? What is it in my heart that's not right? Start there. Start there. It's where the Pharisees did not start and what got them in all kinds of trouble. They, they found ways to insulate themselves from that question. That's really what they did. The rest of what I'm going to talk about are ways that they insulated themselves from looking there, ways they developed to not have to look there, but to look someplace else. To not acknowledge their sin. The first way they did it is that they rested in outward forms. They they rested in the outward uh, ways they did things. Mark chapter seven will will point to that. Look at when he talks about in Mark chapter seven, as we read this morning, they were. Criticizing Jesus because, and Jesus' disciples because they didn't go through the ceremonial hand washing. They didn't, they didn't do it the way they should have done it before they ate. Now that was something that was added to scripture. It wasn't part of the commandment. It was something they added. But it was the way they insulated themselves. They added all kinds of things to, to what God said so that they could somehow rest in that stuff for their righteousness. They could rest in that, and they could look to that for their hope. They could look to that for their easing of their conscience. And they didn't have to really look inside their own lives. They built a whole system of that, of looking to externals. I remember, I remember when I first came in the church, and it's good for me to remember that. That was gets longer and longer ago, and the danger of me... Following the air of the Pharisees gets greater the farther I get away from when I came in and the farther I get away from remembering what it was like when I came in But I came completely from the outside as I've told you before a couple of times I remember being in church because I think the only reason I remember it because that's the only time I was there As a child so it was a foreign culture it would be like today if i walked in those doors back there into this sanctuary it would be like coming to a foreign country to me and and that's what it is for people who come in from the outside oftentimes and you don't even know the ways that you have you have painted things on the outside of christianity If you've experienced what I did coming in, you'll you'll recognize that. You'll recognize ways that that you have made the way you do it. And it has nothing to do with Scripture, really. Or you have to take several jumps to get there. That's what the Pharisees did. The things they developed, you had to take several jumps to get finally to Scripture. And they had maybe some basis in it and sometimes no basis in it. Because they got so far away from it. But it's interesting that that we can all do that. We can all find ways to kind of get comfortable so we don't have to look at our own lives. We don't have to look at our own sin. We don't have to look at our own hearts. Be careful of that. Don't, don't, don't rest in the wrong things. Don't rest in things that you ought not to rest in. Don't make things the standard that ought not to be the standard. The standard is... What's going on in my heart? It's a heart thing. It's a heart religion. It's about the heart. Um, they went on to do things like want the best seat in the synagogue. I mean, they, 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 they built their whole system around being in the synagogue. That's, that goes back to the question that we'll conclude with this morning. Again, the, the question that Spurgeon asked his congregation. How many of you would be a Christian this morning if we didn't have a 1045 service? How much of your Christianity is tied to this form? It's a good question to ask. How would you live out your faith if you didn't have this service? If you have a hard time picturing that, it may be that you've made a bunch of forms and rested in them at the expense of looking at your heart. You see, it's just so easy for us to insulate ourselves. So easy for us to, to put things on the outside that give us a comfort level and keep us from ever having to look on the inside of our lives and of our hearts. They rested in outward forms. The second thing they did is they rationalized sin away. They just they just rationalized it away. We we get that account in the story of of the the gospels that we look at here when when uh, Jesus brings up the subject in Matthew and he comes to them in Matthew about the woe, about honoring your father and mother, that whole dialogue that happens. Let me let me read it to you. Um, it's in verse 15, starting at verse three, he says, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition for God commanded? honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. What's he mean by that? Here's what he means. Commandment. One of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. There's all kinds of places in Old Testament that talk about honoring father and mother. Well, part of honoring them would obviously be to take care of them in their time of need. I mean, to not take care of them, to know they had a need and not to care for them would not be honoring them. But the way they got around doing that is, the way they got around spending their money on their parents Spending their treasure on their parents was that they would commit that treasure to God. And they made a vow that it was God's. And therefore, if it was God's, they couldn't, by another law, take what's God's and use it for their parents. You see the gymnastics they would work there? But there was always the caveat, if you really had a need, you could undo it as committed to God for, for a moment. So you could take a portion. You see, that's, that's the kinds of gymnastics that they used. That's the kinds of ways they rationalized away sin. They rationalized away what was really going on in their hearts because they could justify it. They could do a bunch of gymnastics to justify it in a scriptural way, they thought. Isn't that the way our hearts are? I, I think when you start to ask yourself, what's going on in my heart? you will find ways, you will find times when you do exactly the same thing. And you won't be able to get by with that if you really start to go ask the way you need to ask, what's going on in my heart? Because that will deal with motives. You see, motives and why we do things the way we do. Not just the letter of the law, but why we do it. One of the most chilling portions of scripture for me in the New Testament is the portion about Ananias and Sapphira. You know that story? One of them comes in. They sold a the field, comes in, lies about what they did and how they how much they got, and is struck dead right there. The second one comes in, doesn't know what happened to the first one, does the same thing, struck dead. Now, did did they have to give it to God? No, but what was the sin? What was the sin? They thought they could deceive God. Their motive, their hearts. Now, I'm grateful that God is merciful, because you and I have both done the same thing at times. All of us have, and we didn't die. All of us have. All of us at times have had a motive and done something. And it's no different than what they did. I'm convinced. If we start asking the question, what's going on in my heart, you'll know what I mean. If, that's, if that seems foreign to you today, that that happened in your life, I think once you start asking what's going on in my heart, starting getting to the level of motives, you'll find... That you're not far from Ananias and Sapphira. Why did God do it that way? I think to give us an example. And then to show us mercy. I mean, it just, it, it, when I read that story, I'm just grateful for God's mercy. I'm grateful for the times that I have painted on on the outside something that was not true on the inside. That's what it is. That's what they did. They painted on something to the church on the outside that was not actually true on the inside. You see why I say we've all done that? We've all been prone to that at times. And the way you begin to realize that is when you start to ask, what's going on in my heart? You really let God begin to search your hearts. Search your hearts. And you start to realize that maybe I said something to my own gain which i made everybody think was to not my own gain or whatever it might be that's why when we start to get that in our lives we start to ask what's going on in my heart we start to let god really really look inside of us and we quit insulating ourselves by rationalizing something away that that i think god then begins to come in significant ways in those bodies The other thing that they that happens in that one of the one of the evidences of how that's that happens and one of the one of the things that will produce and the reason it's so damaging to a church and damaging to a body is is really what happens next in that text. And what Jesus talks about is that another woe that comes in Matthew is how they tied heavy burdens on the people. In other words, they placed burdens on the people. And they weren't willing to help the people with those burdens, it 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 is one of the woes that Jesus expresses here in Matthew. How they, how they lay that on the people. Actually, it's in, in Luke's Gospel is where you'll find that. Luke chapter 11. In the Gospel of Luke. Let me read it to you. In verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets. And he goes on to talk about another thing. But here is what what we do. We, 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 We become unmerciful kinds of people. When you start to live on a surface level and you really don't let... Let God search into your hearts when a church begins to live at that level they become unmerciful They 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 lay these external burdens on other people and and they don't they have no mercy for them They have no mercy because they've not seen mercy themselves What makes you a merciful person is when you look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira and you realize in your own life? You have done something just as bad as they've done and You're still living that that creates mercy in your life. That creates mercy in your life for other people because God was merciful to you. He didn't treat you as He could. Mercy is what flows out of a body that is asking the question, what's going on in my heart? Because when we see our hearts and we see we still have a God who is merciful to us and continues to extend mercy to us, We're merciful to others. We don't put heavy burdens on people. And then finally, finally in this whole progression, I I think one of the things that the Pharisees did, and it really was the ultimate thing that cooked them. It was the ultimate thing that, that caused all the rest to happen. And I started to read it here this morning, but in verse 47... It says woe to you for you you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you built their tombs therefore also the wisdom Of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it required of this generation. What he's saying there is that they rejected. The message of the prophets. They rejected the message that centered in him, in Christ. And because of that, that is the real issue. We, we talk often here about the need of the gospel, the need of Christ, the need of really seeing that gospel and seeing the treasure that that gospel is, seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. The reason that all of that happened in the Pharisees' lives is that they, they missed that point. They missed that. The way that all of this happens, the way that you begin to have a life that asks what's going on in your heart, is as you look into the glory of God in the face of Christ, and that's exactly what the Pharisees would not do. They went out to trap Him. They went out to get rid of Him. There was nothing of the Messiah in their life. They had built a system. They had built a religion. But it was all external. It was nothing about the heart. And so with all of that, I come back to you this morning. I come back to you this morning with Spurgeon's quote. Only in our context. If there were no 10:45 worship service this morning would you still be a Christian Take that with you this week see how much of your faith is built on forms now forms are not bad I'm not advocating that we don't have service next week just so we can find out. That's not the answer. I mean, life is is full of forms, but not forms devoid of meaning. Not forms devoid of realizing that those forms are all designed to go to our hearts. They give lip service to God. But their hearts are far from him. So how does that work? I close with this this morning and then we're going to sing. How does that work this morning? How do you come in this morning to this sanctuary? We've talked about this in the past. I'm not saying anything I haven't said before. What do you do when you come in that door and and you know that in a few minutes you're going to give praise to him? You're going to sing. You're going to pray. You're going to be quiet. You're going to listen to the word. It's a form. All that's a form. But how do we keep it without meaning? What if we come in there as dead as a doornail emotionally? Do you just stay out and say, well, I don't have the emotion today, so I'll just turn around and go home. It'll be a dead form if I don't. I don't think so. I think you just come in saying, God, what's going on in my heart? What's going on in my heart? Why is my heart so cold when I'm coming before you? Why is my heart a thousand miles away today? And you just come in repenting, repenting that it's a thousand miles away, repenting that I feel dead. And all the while you're repenting, you're crying out, Oh God, oh God, work in my behalf. Take this heart of mine and work in it. That's not hypocrisy. That's not hypocrisy. That's reality. That is form on a heart level. I pray we're that kind of people. I pray we're always asking, what's going on in my heart? And to the degree we do that, we will not follow the air of the Pharisees. And the degree we don't, we'll see the Pharisee in us. Let's sing together. Stand with me, will you? Help us to see that the most consequential sin in the world is not the sin outside of us. Help us not to be like the Pharisees who could concur with the evilness of their age, never realizing the most serious sin was the sin in their own heart. God, help us to be a people. Who our mantra is, what's going on in my heart. And that Lord, you will so help us that it will change us as we, as we acknowledge it and your grace comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, go and God's peace.